Hello there, this is Lisa Borders, and on this podcast, I'll connect with people from all walks of life. We'll talk about overcoming adversity, transmuting the shadow, and moments of illumination. We'll explore what it means to fulfill our potential while maintaining our most authentic selves. And we'll reflect on the lessons we're learning all along the way. If you feel inspired by what you hear, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the community at lisaborders.us. Thank you for joining me, and this is Enlightened. Hello, everybody. Lisa Borders here. I am so excited to have my friend Stephen Satterfield here with me. This is my homie. He's a foodie. He's friends with my son. It doesn't get any better than the man who understands food and how it connects all of us, not just the sustenance for our life, but the sustenance for our lives. Stephen, welcome. So great to have you. What a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, listen, we are watching you do all the fabulous things that you're doing with food. You started as a food writer, but let me just claim you. You are a homie born right here in my home city, our home city of Atlanta, Georgia at Crawford Long Hospital. What an Atlanta baby, right? (laughs) Yes, with so much pride too. Um, Fifth generation. Oh my gosh, you are traveling the world, but I love it that you have Atlanta roots. And that's just me being selfish. We are just like holding you close and holding you tight, but you are a foodie. That's how I first met you is when you were managing a restaurant in San Francisco. So I want to talk first about what you're doing now. We're going to do this a little bit like a Quentin Tarantino movie. We're going to talk about the ending and then talk about how we got there. You have written and produced a Netflix docu-series. What? Oh my God, that's incredible. All about food. It's called High on the Hog, How African-American Cuisine Transformed America. Can you just talk about where that concept came from and how you even envisioned bringing it to life and bringing it to Netflix? Yes, absolutely. I have to say that um, really I can't take too much credit in this particular process. It's actually based on the text of an amazing food scholar named Dr. Jessica B. Harris, who wrote this book about 12 years ago called High on the Hog. And exactly as the docuseries is a chronological journey of the story of African-American people as told through our food and our food traditions. And so the project has really been underway for years now, but about three and a half years ago, two production partners named Fabian Tobek and Karis Jagger are the ones who decided to option the book for High on the Hog. They got hooked up with a Black director who is immensely talented named Roger Ross Williams. And that team together um, is the one that pitched and presented to Netflix who bought the show. And I was lucky enough to be asked to sort of be 
the face and and the voice for this program which has been the most surreal and incredible experience of my life. Oh my goodness. So let me just back up for a second. I love the humility, but I also <laughs> love that a woman wrote a book, shout out to Dr. Harris 12 years yes. ago. Jeez, oh Pete, that's incredible. Women are in your sphere, in your circle and helping to lift up the work that you are doing. So I love that. But I'm listening to all the relationships and all Mm -hmm. of what appears to be synchronicity. I have been taught that there is no such thing as coincidence. That's God's way of remaining anonymous. Mm -hmm. So you have met all these amazing people. Talk about how you were selected you said you were lucky. Let me define luck for you and our audience. I was taught that luck was ability meeting opportunity. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Ability meeting opportunity. So you have all this ability and knowledge and passion around food, but did you meet Dr. Harris? How, break it down for us. How did this happen? Sure. Yeah. I really appreciate you emphasizing these relationships because it is not possible to actually do this work or any meaningful work without relationships. And I think for me, it's honestly something that I've really been thinking more and more about the further along um, I go in my journey as an entrepreneur and as a creative, because as our ambitions scale, then the importance of our team and our relationships scale accordingly, if not in an outsized way. And with something like a Netflix production, there are teams and teams of people, both internally, whose jobs it is to assess the pitches, to think about where it fits in a a pipeline for their programming, to think about all kinds of considerations There are obviously many people who would love to have a show on Netflix. By your definition, we did get lucky. We were immensely prepared, I think, for myself as my journey with food began so long ago now, relatively speaking, in in 2004. And I really have been unwavering on this path of food and, and wine as a means of deeper understanding. And so I really think that the moment of this show, which we started to film in 2019 and was released in May of 2021, we are so fortunate in that timing and that it was able to meet our creative vision and that we were able to wrap this thing before COVID-19, which we're so fortunate just one week later and who knows how this thing ends up. And I really can't say enough about the stakeholders who were involved in this project, the the camera crews, the sound crews, the producers, all the coordination that it takes to make something at this scale. And it's a peculiar experience to know this and then to be the face of something because the relationship that people have especially to story and to narrative, it is with the orator or the narrator or the presenter. And that's why it's such a great responsibility to hold that position of storyteller. So I'm trying to concurrently acknowledge my place in this production, but also knowing there are so many people who are not the face of this thing. 
um, without whom this work could not be possible. You know what? I am so proud of you, but I am proud of all of them. Don't know any of them from a can of paint, but certainly yield to your explanation and your clear understanding of what it takes. No one gets anywhere by themselves. It takes a village and you have beautifully described the village that brought that docuseries to life. But let me pull on that relationship thread, if you will, because we were talking initially about people and Dr. Harris who wrote the book and then the pitch and all the folks who were involved, but let's pull the thread to your relationship with food. Now, I know you went to the University of Oregon for a year, and then you decided to go to culinary school. And at 19, you start studying wine and you became a sommelier. Somebody say amen, a sommelier by 21, and then founded a nonprofit around wine. I want you to talk a little bit about that process and that journey, because most people would look at your Netflix docuseries and say, dang, he just woke up one day and did this. And no, you put in the work. So help us understand that journey and the arc of that transition. Yeah, it has been a very long journey and it continues. The work continues as well. So yeah, as you say, I, when I was still a teenager, had a clear epiphany that told me I was ready to and wanted to pursue a life in food. And I think that I was deeply impacted by food media of the time. So in the late 90s, when I was in in high school in the early 2000s, this was concurrent with the rise of the Food Network. There had been food television programming, but this was the first time that we really saw it in the way that we saw something like CNN, a 24-hour news network. So at any point of the day, you could turn on the television and watch someone cooking. And for me, it opened up a possibility in food that was more professionalized as especially Black folks, we have had such an interesting relationship to food in this country. I'm speaking uh, from the U.S. perspective in that the foundational relationship that African people have to this soil in North America is based on our agricultural acumen. And so if you look at, for instance, and in particular, the rice trade, It is our acumen as farmers, and in particular rice farmers, that unfortunately facilitated our our capture and captivity. And so I always think about food as the way to understand human beings and the way to understand our relationship to the world and each other both in a contemporary context and more crucially in an origin context or how we got here context. And I got that perspective as a young sommelier. Basically, I did a year of college. I realized that I wanted to commit myself to food. Enrolled in culinary school in Portland, Oregon, and I had an unusual experience in that At first, I was thinking I wanted to be a chef, but one of the first classes that I took as part of the curriculum was an introductory wine class. 
And it was taught by someone who was making wine, what we would call a garage winemaker, so very small batch in the Willamette Valley, which is just south of Portland, Oregon, an area that most folks are unaware produces some of the very best wine in the whole world. And so I had this extremely, I think, privileged front row seat, not just in this education at a really impressionable and formative age, but in an area where I could actually go out to these vineyards and see for myself what the relationship was between the end product in a bottle and the agrarian product in the field, which is grapevines. And in the world of wine, we have this way of thinking about, talking about, assessing the quality of wine that is rooted in a word called terroir. It's a French word, terroir. And it essentially is a way for wine professionals, growers, and makers to have a universal basis of language and comparison for something that is otherwise wildly subjective, Mm -hmm. right? And the way that wine people from New Zealand to New York can talk about the same thing in an otherwise subjective context is through this word terroir, which is about the historical relationship between the land and the human and environmental intervention and relationships that inform what the grapes will taste like. And and we do it for grapes, but you could do this for anything. And so in other words, the terroir is really a way to talk about the place. And to talk about wine is to talk about capturing a place in the bottle. And so this for me was like extremely enlightening. This rocked my world because then I started to think about terroir as a framework that I could apply to all different parts of my life, like racism and inequality. And I started to look at what are the environmental conditions that created this inequality? What were the human inputs that facilitated or disrupted the spread of this inequality? And what do those relationships look like over a period of generations so that this assessment of of the fruit is actually Mm -hmm. bound to a historical context and analysis? So I know that might be a little bit far out for people who aren't deeply into wine, but to put more simply, it rocked my world. It changed, <laughs> it changed the way that I saw the world. And so basically I started to use food and wine as a way to radicalize people. And so in 2007, I, I came back to Atlanta. I started a nonprofit called International Society of Africans and Wine. It's a mouthful, but we went by the moniker of ISAW. And essentially, we were championing wine as a means of socioeconomic development in South Africa, working with Black and Indigenous winemakers and farmers in South Africa. And really, for me, the powerful lesson there was in understanding that wine, in this case, allowed me to 
have really difficult conversations with people in a way that was disarming. Talking to wealthy white audiences at fundraising dinner about apartheid in South Africa as a means of helping them understand institutional racism in the United States is not something that I would have been able to do without wine and food as a comfortable medium to get to these more important parts of the dialogue. And crucially, I started to document this work in an effort to tell the stories on behalf of the farmers and winemakers who we were working with at the time. And so I started to develop a proficiency in storytelling that I didn't know I was developing at the time. I was just focused on this work. But it really began for me a career in using food and wine as a basis of really not just radicalizing people, but particularly from this perspective of origin and particularly from this perspective of land and place and provenance. And from that perspective, using it as an opportunity for disenfranchised groups to reclaim their history, to reclaim this really essential part of their identity. And so the, as we begin with High on the Hog, that work is really an embodiment of this thesis, which is that if Black folks don't know that we created catering and in this country and we created mac and cheese in this country, then we actually lose agency in the absence of that knowledge. And in the presence of that knowledge, of course, the opposite is true as well. And so I've been so delighted to see all of these letters from the diaspora, African diaspora all over the world of people saying, now I'm, I'm engaging with my family's history, with my mom, I'm asking my granny these questions, I'm in the kitchen again. And so I, I see this work is really a, a project of reclamation as well. Wow. Okay, Stephen, you just dropped not just a dime of history, you have dropped like a hundred dimes of history and you said a lot. So we got to unpack some of that. Let me just start by saying that the approach to having people understand where we come from and how valuable and how valued it should be, this is a very unique approach. I don't drink wine, but I'm going to have to reconsider based on what you're telling me now. I was a French major. So as soon as you said terroir, I'm like, oh yeah, I understand. I know what you're talking about. The fact that it offers a standardized or a framework or standardized way to have a conversation about wine, whether you're in Atlanta, Georgia, or Georgia in the international markets, it offers a basis from which everybody can talk. Now we're familiar with that in finance, right? The Securities and Exchange Commission says, this is how we're gonna talk about money or this is how we're gonna talk about assets. We are not necessarily in general en masse familiar with talking about other areas of our lives in standardized ways. So that's a dime right there. But the notion of the agricultural acumen, I heard you clearly, and I've seen movies about this recently, where most folks think about Black people being taken from the motherland to come over and work in the U.S. and in South America, frankly, everywhere, colonization and 
colonialism was going on everywhere, but we're most familiar with it in the U.S., it wasn't just for the labor. Sure, they were taking advantage of Black people from a labor perspective, because slavery, you're not paying people for their work. But the acumen of knowing how to grow cotton or how to pick it or grow rice or corn or beans or whatever, that was knowledge we brought from the motherland. And so this notion of reclamation and understanding is very helpful. And I know all of us are familiar, regardless of color, regardless of ethnic background, we're all familiar with passing down recipes from one generation to the next. But we do it, I think, more out of an emotional context as opposed to this is a way to look at the world. So I know you not only write about food, you not only have studied food and where it came from and how it's connected continents and communities, but you love to eat food. So tell me, what's your favorite meal? I know you have done some stuff from scratch. I I read an article about you being in a friend's apartment in Brooklyn and you freestyled and made this amazing meal out of sweet potatoes and peanuts. And I was like, oh my goodness, I would never think to do this. But your exposure and experience in the food and wine space has enabled you to do that. What's your favorite meal? Yes, I'm going to answer that. But I also just want to say quickly that regarding the the terroir conversation, you actually don't have to drink wine to appreciate the, the notion. And I think increasingly, actually, I've been noticing in the world of food that people are starting to talk about terroir outside of the world of wine. So you could talk about like the terroir ah. of a Georgia peach versus a California peach, for instance. So nice. please don't be discouraged. The, the, the framework still checks out. Love that. Love that. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And then as far as favorite foods, there are so many, but I I think like for me, I came to this, I came to this work because I love food. I love eating. I I came into food because basically I think I'm a somewhat hedonistic person. If I'm going to be like incredibly honest I love indulgence. I love pleasure. I love leisure. I love enjoying. I love hanging out with my friends and family. And so food is the way across space and time. That's as humans, that is how we get down. That's how we do that. That's how we convene. And and that is a universal quality of humans that has been true for as long as there have been humans. So I like being connected to that human tradition in that way. And then yeah, as far as like my favorite foods, I'm a very moody eater. So I tend to enjoy um, eating whatever I'm really in the mood for. I'm often in the mood for things that make me feel effervescent. I like to drink bubbles a lot. I'm a big champagne fan. So I like to eat things that go with champagne really well, like oysters or fried chicken or um, <laughs> fried like so it's a pretty broad spectrum but then I was like don't the French say everything goes with champagne it actually it's hard to dispute I really am like I just love champagne so much I really also enjoy just like the regional black cooking that I grew up with so my dad is an amazing cook so all of our regional cultural specialties, mac and cheese, collard greens, black eyed peas. He's amazing at frying fish, like fish and rice. That is one of my favorite things. Whenever I'm in the Caribbean, I love to eat fish and rice. 
So I really try to think about food as what's connected to the place where I am. Again, it goes back to this place-based way of relating to the world. And I try to, when I can, have wherever I am inform my diet because I think it's good for my constitution. But I also think that more often than not, you're probably going to get the best version of whatever that particular area that you're in has a historical or traditional connection to. So that's usually where my mood takes me. Oh, I love that. So a mood eater, that's a new moniker. I've never heard that before, but I love it. Most people or many people, I should say, when they travel, they want to go see all the beautiful cathedrals or the ruins or whatever. And so you want to see that, but you want to check out the food, the authentic indigenous foods that are there, which is speaks to your sense of adventure as well, that you're willing to learn the history of that place and that space. And why did you tell me that dad can fry up some fish and rice? Because now I know I'm going to have to hit dad up for that. That sounds amazing. So let me go back for just a second. And as I think about you going to school and learning about all this stuff and diving in in a really deep way, I remember back in 2015 or 16, whenever that was that you were at NOPA, that I had the privilege of coming to your restaurant and spending time there with you. I recall too, reading about you starting a blog and NOPA is a farm to table. So you guys were in the farm to table space before it was a thing. So what brought you to NOPA? And can you talk a little bit about starting to write the blog and Whetstone and how that continued your development in the food and wine space? Sure, yeah. I'm appreciating all of your pre-production research in this interview. (laughs) Yeah, so NOPA, as you say, was a vanguard farm-to-table restaurant in San Francisco but also connected to a tradition of like restaurants over the last 50 years or so in this vein of what we call farm to table. And for people who don't know what that is, it's what it sounds like. It's restaurants that put a premium on buying food from local or regional purveyors. There's no exact hard and fast rules about it, but it tends to be within a 150 mile radius. And so after my experience with the nonprofit, starting the nonprofit in 07, we ran that from 2007 to 2010, about three and a half years. And it was a 501c3 nonprofit. We were a tax exempt nonprofit. And we were in a very difficult space in that, obviously, this is after the massive recession of 2008. And we were in a donor based model. In other words, our existence being reliant upon the generosity and goodwill of of people who are able to be generous, but it was hard to be generous even for people with money in 2008. Tried to, as we now call it, pivot um, into a for-profit company that was doing direct-to-consumer wine sales and subscriptions with these Black-owned brands from South Africa. The problem with that is wine is a heavily taxed and regulated product and us trying to sell a heavily taxed and regulated product as a tax exempt organization got incredibly cumbersome. And even though we had some amazing and generous pro bono attorneys at the time, 
really did a lot for us. Shout out to the King and Spalding attorneys. They really did a lot for us, actually. But it just got to be too complicated. And we couldn't really... I found myself moving further and further away from wine and kind of this social enterprise into enmeshed in like paperwork and just trying to make these two kind of entities match that had no business together. And I was a little bit sad and disillusioned, dissolved this nonprofit. And I decided I need to go back to my roots, quote unquote. So I went back in the wine business via this restaurant, Nopa, as a sommelier. I got hired as a sommelier and manager. And I loved the restaurant. I mean, it's a, it was a big place, still around, but it was a kind of heyday at the time. We would have 600 people come into this restaurant over the course of an evening. So the energy was just like tremendous. There's 110 seats. It really was the, the pulse of the neighborhood and really of the moment of dining in San Francisco, I think, in some ways as well. And as I got to work in wine, I almost instantly realized that that part of my life was over. And after I had done the whole process of this pseudo nonprofit entrepreneurial thing, and then coming back to work for someone else in a restaurant, it was just like, it's weird. But I did really appreciate the restaurant. They were genuinely connected to the purveyors. And that really was aligning with my own personal politic of supporting local food systems as a way to push back against industrial agrarian economies that basically destroy the planet and take advantage of people and all kinds of other stuff that we probably know but don't need to get into right now. And so I started to move away from wine and move more towards what I was into at the time, which is documenting these stories, land-based agrarian stories that had a real clear perspective or call to action. In California, Northern California, there are so many local farms that are very well supported, which is unusual, but just the breadth and quality and commitment to land restoration and preservation through farming was really fascinating to me. And I wanted our team to basically have that same knowledge and so I started a blog called Nopalize, which is basically an ongoing chronicle of new products moving through the restaurants, but more crucially, a way to honor and celebrate our local food community. And we started to work with creators all across San Francisco doing videos. We, I mean, we didn't even call it podcasting back then because this is 2013, but like doing podcasts, videos, edit, online publishing, editorial. And I was really good at it. I mean, I'm just going to say that. And I didn't realize how good I was until I had been doing it a couple of years. And one of my mentors, a woman named Naomi Starkman, who runs a company called Civil Eats. It's a digital web. It's a website that does really exhausting reporting on the U.S. food system. And so Naomi's been in business for herself for over a decade. She comes from the New York Times, like incredible pedigree as a journalist. She comes and she's friends with my boss at the time. And she said, do you have any idea what this guy is doing for you? This work is amazing. You should be paying him to do this. And so he's like, okay, I guess this is what you're going to do now. And it actually became my full-time job. So for about a year and a half, I had, I think, one of the best jobs in the country 
where essentially I was just a media guy for this restaurant group, this incredible restaurant group. So I was following around our chefs and making videos of them making certain dishes. I was following around the bartenders and watching them put cocktails together. I was visiting farms and doing short profiles and interviews with the farmers. I even started doing public events, like inviting people on bus rides. I would get these solar and electric powered buses and take them two hours to Sonoma County to go tour farms. So it was just a very active time. And I didn't realize how much I was taking in and how fast I was developing these skills as a media person. So that means the ability, I think, to have a clear point of view, to take in a lot of information, to synthesize that information in a way that is coherent and beautiful. So that is my gift. And I did this for about a year and a half. And eventually my bosses were like, hey, you got to get out of here. <laughs> You've basically started a business inside of this business. I had trade accounts going with like filmmakers. So I didn't have any money, but I had convinced my bosses, hey, let me get like $2,000 a month in trade accounts. And then I would go negotiate with a filmmaker or with a writer or editor with the trade account because it was a very popping restaurant at the time. So I did that for about a year and a half. And eventually they kicked me to the curb. But lovingly, they, they asked me, what do you need to take this to the next step? And at this time, I had started to envision Whetstone in that I knew I wanted to keep telling these land-based stories, but I wanted to do it not from myopic world of Northern California and really look at the world of agriculture and the world of origin and terroir and really go deep with this kind of anthropological food magazine. And so they gave me $5,000 to work with a brand strategist and a graphic designer. And we worked together for about three months and we came up with the logo for Whetstone. We came up with the brand identity, the brand language. And honestly, that was almost seven years ago. We're still rocking with the same logo, still working wow. with a lot of the same team. That vision, that process that we went through envisioning the brand for Whetstone, I have to say, we really hit the mark on it and basically went back to my boss after that process and said, hey, I got this brand Whetstone. I think I'm ready. And literally, that was my last week of work. And that was in 2015. Oh, my God. So you unpacked that so beautifully and walked us through all of the steps. But let me just go back and say, just as an observer, that you were at the center of all of it and your vision, whether you realized it or not, you set a panoramic vision for where you wanted to go. This passion for food and wine and the construct that it offers to understand not just the individual pieces of food or bottle of wine, but humanity and how we live our lives and how we are interconnected to the earth is fascinating, but equally fascinating is all the relationships that you have created, cultivated, and curated, whether it was with Dr. Harris for Netflix or whether it was the owners of NOPA or the trade things you were doing with gift coupons for writers and others who would work with you. So you always found a resource that you could parlay or leverage into pushing you forward. And I'm saying this really for our listening friends so that they understand the work that's at the heart of all of this 
it starts with a vision, but recognizing you got to do a lot of the work yourself before anyone else can believe you've got to believe and then put a plan in place and execute and be willing to learn every step of the way. Tell me this, Stephen, was there ever a time through all of these lived experiences, because you've turned the personal into the professional, and it sounds like there's not even a blurring of the lines. The lines are sitting on top of one another, which is fabulous. Was there ever a time where you went through an experience, you had one point of view, went through an experience and came through on the other side with an evolved point of view, or maybe a more embraced point of view as you looked at the land, the intervention of people with the land, what comes out of the land and how we use it. Was there ever a time where you were thinking one way, went through an experience, came through on the other side with something different or something where you wanted to double down? That is an excellent question. It's tricky because a lot of our work I do feel is based in conviction. And a lot of the conviction that we have, for me, I think conviction is a big part of it. And I actually think that folks who have conviction are really compelling for other people. And in my case, I do think that a lot of the ideas that we were trying to kind of mainstream and mainline, the world has actually caught up to in a more real way, especially around identity. And there's a lot to say about that, but I'm just trying to stay focused so I can answer your question. And I'm saying that because I don't want to suggest that we don't have the capacity to be influenced or a willingness to, to change our beliefs when presented with new or different information. But I also just want to say a lot of the basis of what this company was built on not only do we still believe in, but I feel that perspective has actually been proven true and necessary as our presence in this world is necessary and our work is necessary. But one thing I can say is that I think when we started For Real in 2016, there was a narrative in food media, which was about food having the capacity to bring people together and it seems like a pretty like innocuous statement a declarative statement yeah sure our food can bring people together but with deeper interrogation there is not insignificant part of the intellectual group of food writers and thinkers who really pushed back on that idea and said hey that's intellectually lazy or void just to say, if we have a meal together, this is going to cure racism. Is that really true? Like, do you really (laughs) think that? Do you really think that just because somebody likes to eat tacos that they're not going to be racist against Mexican people? So like there started to be um, a creeping skepticism, I would say, among my colleagues in this notion of food and its capacity to bring people together, which I actually agree with the critique. But as we moved further and further into this work, we have always talked about food as a means of deepening empathy among humans. And I have recognized in in some situations how me 
advocating for food as a means of deepening empathy among humans feels a little bit like this soft and squishy position of food having the ability to bring people together. And for a little bit of time, I was like, am I being hokey? Am I out of touch around this? I really started to question myself, like around the kind of rigor of that idea of food having the capacity to build empathy. But as we've gone further and further into this work, we've produced in over 80 countries. We've worked with over 200 journalists from around the world. So the brand and our work is really deeply international. It's really intersectional, culturally, racially, everything, geographically. And I've since come back around to my original position of food having the capacity to deepen empathy. And the reason for that is because saying that something has the capacity is not a promise. There's no certainty of the outcome. It's just about looking at food as a tool in the kit of tools to help humans more meaningfully and mindfully connect with each other. And to that end, I have seen and continue to see and believe that we have a unique opportunity and using food as a means of intersectional movement building, because it is the only thing that we actually all have in common is Mm. that we have to eat. And so even as I identify as not an activist, but an advocate, one who likes to champion progressive movements and causes, I've been in plenty of rooms with folks who are deep in this work, who still struggle to find the necessary common ground for their intersectional oppression. And these are people who have language for this stuff and who really know this stuff. And so I'm looking at food as a really unique way for us to all not only connect with each other, but ourselves. So that's why using food as a way to understand your own identity, your own history, now your posture looks different, right? Because your history and culture and identity, which has been mindfully, continuously obfuscated and stripped away from you, you now in holding this part of your identity show up differently in the world. And what I believe you show up as a person with a deeper capacity to appreciate that about someone else's food culture. If you genuinely absorbed it as part of your identity, it's not a a conclusion of supremacy. It's a conclusion of humanity because the story of food is the story of migration. So when you're talking about where food comes from, you're actually also talking about the movement of people, both forced and willful, right? So that is how food gets moved around. It's a migration of people, of plants and idea, intellectual technology. And that is a very fertile place to begin to understand someone else's culture. It's a very fertile place to actually develop the curiosity that is the prerequisite for understanding. And so if you're 
own confidence in yourself through your own identity is sound. You have the capacity to develop a curiosity, which gives you the capacity to develop understanding, which gives you the capacity to develop empathy for other people. And that then we can maybe start to talk about how the world can change for better. But if you can't feel my place in the world, if I'm invisible to you in the world because I've been erased, there's no way that we can have an empathetic connection. And so I, long-winded answer, but I have come back around on food having the capacity to deepen human connection and to build empathy. Oh my God. Okay. You call yourself a storyteller. I'm going to call you a preacher because you just laid down a sermon. Let me say this. I'm going to once again, selfishly bring this all the way back to Atlanta to home team because we're in the South and we have long believed that food was a connector. It is a connector to get to know somebody you need to break bread who are your people? Where are you from? And we're going to talk about that over food. So the authentic and simple direct message about food building capacity for empathy and for connectivity and for humanity, I'm going to say amen. And just thank you for the work that you are doing and that your team is doing helping us learn our history and our heritage and giving us hope that what we have in common by your definition, food is actually a conduit to connection and to understanding and appreciating one another. Steven Satterfield, you are amazing. Let me also give you shout out and congratulations for the renewal of season two. I understand, of High on the Hog, how African-American cuisine transformed America. Some folks never get one show, and now you headed to season two. Get it. You get it. We are so proud of you and happy for you. Do you promise to come back and keep us posted on what you're doing? I promise. Hopefully next time in person. Oh, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. Steven Satterfield, folks, you are the best. Thank you, my friend. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on, Lisa. All right, everyone. That was this week's episode of Enlightened. I hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life. If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week.